mentioned way back in 404 B.C. in Genesis chapter 3, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. There in the garden, as God judged and dealt with the first sin of man, we hear the first mention of one who would bruise Satan's head. Now, the enmity was between Satan and the woman rather than Satan and the man because this is a virginal birth, and this is the first time that's distantly referenced. It's not obvious here, but when you look back, you can see that relationship. Then in the Abrahamic covenant, over 2,000 years later, in Genesis 22, And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. In promising a bright future to Abraham, God mentions that all the nations of the earth will be blessed by Abraham's obedience. This reveals that the Messiah would be an Abrahamite. Now that's not a word we talk about very often. Abrahamite. So an Abrahamite includes the Jews and includes most of the Arabs. <clears throat> the message would be, the Messiah would be an Abrahamite. This is not an obvious reference then, but once again, from where we are looking back in hindsight, a clear reference to the coming Messiah. Then in 727 BC, a deathbed prophecy, uh, Jacob, on his deathbed, says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall, be the, shall the gathering of the people be. Jacob, in blessing his sons and foretelling details of their tribal destinies, because remember, each son had a tribe descended from him, he mentions Judah as the ruling tribe. Now, this honor should have gone to one of his three older brothers, but they disqualified themselves. They forfeited their primacy when... The eldest sinned against his father, uh, going in uh, to some of his concubines. And the younger two uh, sinned against their father in making his name stink with their neighbors because they slaughtered a bunch of people. So Jacob says, you know, that, that's it. Neither of you, neither of you three are going to be leading. The fourth will, will, will be the, the, the leading um, tribe. And the the reference to the scepter shall not depart from Judah is talking about an eternal kingship. So this points to the Messiah being Judean, not just Israelite, but a Judahite. And then in 1491 B.C., during the time of the Exodus, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, Draw out and take you a lamb according to your families." And kill the Passover. And in the Passover, we have the clearest picture of the atoning work of Christ. If you can remember the story, we did study it, although it was much of two years ago now. A sentence of death that everyone was under. Every house would lose their firstborn. A substitutionary sacrifice by killing the lamb, by shedding its blood, and by placing it upon the doorpost. The Israelites were exempted if they did it God's way. He specified how the lamb was to be killed, what the lamb qualifications were, how the blood was to be spread. If you did it another way, things would not turn out well for your firstborn. <clears throat> and a destiny redirected from death unto life. And it's a beautiful picture of what Christ would one day accomplish. 
A little bit after that, a standard revealed in Deuteronomy, and he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, even ten commandments, and he wrote them upon two tables of stone. God at Mount Sinai gave Israel his standards for holiness. Obey this, meet this standard, and you live. But one failure makes you deserving of death. It's an impossible standard. And it's given to Israel to show them their need for a redeemer. You can't do it as a human. We're just not that consistent. And then slightly later, a sacrificial reminder in the book of Leviticus. And Moses said unto Aaron, Go unto the altar and offer thy sin offering and thy burnt offering and make an atonement for thyself and for the people. And offer the offering of the people and make an atonement for them as the Lord commanded. And in establishing the sacrificial system, God gave Israel a regular reminder of their sin. And the cost to even cover it and roll it forward was blood. This, their entire covenant that they had with God pointed to the need for a Messiah. In the same way that he gave the church a covenant looking back to the Messiah. God understands us. He knows how short our memories are. He knows how quickly we forget. And so he sets up as part of his relationship with us a commandment to regularly remind us the cost. Point either forward in this case or backward in our case to the cross. About two, uh, some, was that, 400 years later, the Davidic covenant, God speaking through Samuel, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee, thy throne shall be established forever. In this passage, God established David's house and promised him an eternal kingship. So now the Messiah is revealed to be a son of David. From an Abrahamite to an Israelite to a Judean, uh, uh, excuse me, that should be a Judahite, and keeps narrowing it down, now a son of David. And the eventual kingship, the eternal eventual kingship of the Messiah is also revealed here. Every time God tells Israel more about the Messiah, he's revealing more about who the Messiah was and what the Messiah would do year after year. And then in about 725 BC, we get a confusing prophecy. Isaiah said he was speaking of the Messiah in this long passage, says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. And boy, did this ever confuse the poor Israelites. Because they had a picture in their mind from the Davidic covenant, their Messiah would be an eternal king. And why would an eternal king be oppressed and afflicted and say nothing? This, this really messed with the scribes and the, the studiers of the law. They could not conceive how this passage fit into the rest. Now we know, looking back, Christ was always coming twice. First as a sacrifice, the second time as a king. So we, looking back, have no trouble. But trust me, if we were in the shoes of the Israelites, 
in 700 BC, we would also be scratching our heads going, um, wait, what, what? <clears throat> 410 BC, God tells of a forerunner in Malachi, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. God reveals that he would prepare the hearts of his people for their redeemer by sending a forerunner. And this sadly tells, tells, predicts something of the hearts of Israel. The hearts of Judah, they're not going to turn to Christ without a forerunner. And even then, they're not going to turn to him the way they should. This predicts John the Baptist, a man loved of the people and truly hated by the religious authorities because he, he knocked them over. He knocked them down. He says, you, you guys are not doing what you ought to be doing. So those are the promises we're going to look at. Let me try that again. Those are the promises we're going to look at. At, as we move forward in this lesson, we're going to transition here. I've uh, titled this in red, Defining Scripture, Christ speaking to his disciples. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you when I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Jesus, right before his ascension, talking to his disciples, reminding them of the things he told them, he counts all three divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, counting them all as scripture. Similarly, the New Testament, also scripture, and we're going to be talking about that next week, so stay tuned, not a separate book. This is an important point here, guys. Old Testament and New Testament are not two unrelated works inside a common binding. The New Testament is a continuation of the Old Testament. As we begin, as we as a class begin to study the New Testament, we need to stay firmly grounded in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament's not just some writings that God gave to the Israelites, which are no longer relevant to us. They're the foundation upon which the entire New Testament edifice is built. Without the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't make any sense. You know, I know as a kid, you know, in that teenage, you know, the New Testament made sense within reason. But the Old Testament, you know, what's, what's that doing there? But as you, hopefully as you mature as a Christian, as you learn more, you come to see that the, Old, the New Testament does not stand on its own. Some guy came and died on the cross. So what? But viewed from the perspective of the Old Testament, you see the need for a redeemer. You see God working across centuries to set up the conditions for his redeemer. And everything in the New Testament only makes sense in the light and the context of the Old Testament. So I apologize, I don't have my clock back there because it always gets twitchy on Time Change Sunday. So I may occasionally have to check my reference time here, uh, or I may end early or late. We try not to do that. So, here we have an aside, biblical tools. Let me walk down here and grab my Bible. 
I've kind of gotten out of the habit of bringing this, which is unfortunate. And I would encourage you, as, Dan, as Darren has over the last couple weeks, if you have your Bible, here, hold it up. Now, if you're using an electronic aid, hold it up. That works too. If you have neither, do better. So in teaching and in responding to criticism, Jesus always spoke the words of his father as recorded in the Old Testament. Rather than just accepting these words, we should always be ready to study these for ourselves. Because by going back and checking, we get the complete context of the quote. You don't just pull it out of context and take it for what it is. You understand why it was spoken. Who spoke it? To whom was it spoken? Helps you to really understand why Christ is referencing it. So we're going to look a little bit, we're going to take a little aside as we start studying the New Testament and talk about Bible tools. Now, that little highlight is from my Bible, because it's the one I had at the time. As we look at this passage in Luke, um, Luke 2, I think, 22, And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. I apologize. Your Bible should be open and you should be following if you have one, please. Because we're going to talk about the tools that are in your Bible to help you study. And if you're not looking in your Bible, you won't be able to see what tools your Bible has. Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, if you look at your Bible, verse 23 should in some way look different from 22 and 24. In my Bible, it's in parenthesis. That sets it apart because it is a direct quote from the Old Testament. Look at your Bible and see how your Bible sets it apart. And if your Bible doesn't in any way set it apart, if you really want to study Bible, you shouldn't be using that one. Sorry. Then there's the Old Testament uh, references. Should show up maybe as a center column in your Bible. Now I'm going to walk over here. Since while I intended to bring a laser pointer, I didn't. This column here in my Bible, and there should be a similar column in your Bible if it's a study Bible, are going to give you references. So in verse 23, you see this little A right here? And if you can't, move closer. (laughs) You see this little A right here? There's an A right here. And that says this passage is referenced in Exodus 13.2, Numbers 3.13, and 18.15. If you've ever wondered how preachers, when they're preparing a sermon, get all these cross-references, it's from their Bible or from other resources. And you should have those same resources at your fingertips Because we Christians should be responsible to study God's word. 
Now, does that mean every single time you read a verse in the Bible, you have to go check out every reference? No. But you want to have a Bible that when you look at the reference and go, hmm, I wonder where that came from, it's there waiting for you to look at it. That's what you want out of a study Bible. Now, my particular study Bible's got a couple of other tools. Uh, this is a, a Greek and Hebrew keyword Bible. You'll notice this little 125 circled here. That's a reference to Strong's Concordance. And this, it is written, is one word in the Greek. And I can go into the back of my Bible and look up 1125, and it'll tell me what that word is. Right over here, every male that openeth the womb, there's a little PPT. That's a grammatical mark telling me what uh, tense of the Greek is being used. That's a past, uh, PPT is a, it's a participle of some, I can't remember. It's probably a past participle. Um, and again, that's significant because it affects the meaning of the verse. Also, know who wrote. Most Bibles are going to contain notes down on the bottom. Those notes can be a problem and they can be a help. Before you buy a Bible, or your current Bible, take a look at the organization and the editors. And know what their biblical stance and position is. Because while those notes are not inspired, they can be influential. And just as you do not want to be sitting under the teaching of a pastor you don't agree with, you shouldn't be using a study Bible with notes written by some Yahoo who you'd never be under if you were a pastor. In the case of my Bible, Spiros Zohadites, a fairly, now dead, fairly famous Greek scholar, conservative Christian, Warren P. Baker, couldn't find as much information about him. He was the editor, generally came from what I'd consider conservative colleges, so wasn't a point of concern. AMG, the... Uh, the publisher, they're kind of a mixed bag, but they're not notably liberal, so I had no particular issue. <laughs> Take the time to know who is writing your notes. Because you're paying <laughs> 80, 100 bucks for a good Bible. You shouldn't be paying, paying 80 bucks for garbage notes. Right? So, I'll get off my soapbox. And we're going to look at a passage in heat. But to close, to close that out, I encourage you, know your Bible. Know what the tools you have at hand are. Most Bibles, you can turn to the beginning of the Bible or the end of the Bible, and they'll have details of how the tools are supposed to work. They're in there. Now, I realize this is an age where we plug in a DVD or a computer without ever reading the instructions, where we operate our cars without ever, ever looking at the owner's manuals. But you really should operate your Bible after reading the owner's manual. There's a lot in here that, you, that, you have, that you've paid for that you ought to be taking advantage of as you study. Okay. Passage in Hebrews, brother. The Epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. Chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, 
hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits, sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? So this passage, the introduction to the book of Hebrews, does a pretty good job of laying out the message of the New Testament, even though it's hardly the first chapter in the New Testament. The message of the Old Testament is clear. A Messiah is necessary, and he is coming. That's the summary of all of those passages that I opened the lesson with. You need a Messiah, but don't worry, I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> I already have a plan. It's being executed as we speak. He's coming. But if that's the message of the Old Testament, what's the message of the New Testament? Anybody? The Messiah has come. And Hebrews, written as a missive, a letter, to all of the Hebrews who have not yet accepted Christ is a particularly good book to link the Old and New Testament because it highlights Christ as the one who fulfilled all of the prophecies, the one who is superior to the old way of doing things. And that opening passage talking about the supremacy of Christ, in particular over angels, over other heavenly beings, which the Jews had a certain degree of respect. They didn't worship them, but they recognized them as significant intermediaries between them and God. The writer of Hebrews is saying, Christ is not just some other angel. He's not some other intermediary. He is God. He was the Messiah, and incidentally, you missed him. Catch up to the train, please. But if that's the message of the New Testament, well, let's take a look at one of the first recognitions of the Messiah here in Luke, please. 
And this should be familiar. This is the passage we were just looking at in study and how to study it with your Bible. Go ahead, brother. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them, and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Official notice. First, if you're following along in your Bible, look at verses 23 and 35. They should be set apart from the other text in some way. And that's because they're both direct quotes out of the Old Testament. And again, if you want to use your Bible as a study tool, and those two verses aren't called out separately from the rest of the text, you might want to try a different study Bible. Because that's kind of basic. If it doesn't have that, it's not a study Bible. Now, do you have to have a study Bible? What did the Lord tell us? What did, excuse me, what did Paul tell Timothy? Brother, give me the quote. Now, you can duck that requirement and say, well, I'm not a pastor. I don't need to do that. Or you could recognize that it's really a commandment to all Christians. We're, we are to study to show ourselves approved. And the first step in studying to show yourself approved is to have a study Bible, whether it's electronic or good old-fashioned paper. I'd recommend you have something. Now, I have absolutely no authority, and I've just smacked my mic. So feel free to ignore me. But do you realize this is what God said. Now, Luke is including these two references because he's explaining Old Testament practices to a Greek. The book of Luke was written to a man named Theophilus, a Greek whose name was lover of God. But he had no background in the Israelite religion. He had no background in 
everything. And he probably didn't have a copy of the Old Testament. Maybe he did. Maybe he had a copy of the Septuagint. But Luke is helping him along, pointing out the stuff that matters, why stuff is being done, because it's the way it was done in the Old Testament. It was nice of Luke, I think. It had been revealed to Simeon. There is so much going on in those four words. It had been revealed. So first of all, today, how many people, give or take, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit? It's a ridiculously large number because all saved people are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In 3 BC, when this story takes place, how many people do we know were indwelt by the Holy Spirit? One. Different world. That one person was Simeon. And it had been revealed to him that he would not die until God sent Messiah. Now, it was certainly possible that the Lord gave him a vision, sent an angel, spoke with him audibly, but as the Bible doesn't say that, I'm inclined to think that probably didn't happen. What happened is this old man was studying the scriptures, studying the Old Testament, and he ran across the prophecy in Daniel, which said how long it would be before Messiah, and he did a little bit of math and went, He's got to be coming kind of soon. And he looked at references. And he knew that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And given Bethlehem's location relative to Jerusalem, chances are the parents would come to this temple in Jerusalem to have the kid brought before the Lord 40 days after his birth. And God made him certain, just by speaking to him silently in his heart, I believe, that he would be there. That certainty that you feel when God is guiding you, when you realize you're on the right path. And that morning, he wasn't scheduled to be at the temple. But something moved him. The Spirit of God said, maybe you ought to be there. We don't know how many days he'd just shown up expecting something might have happened. He was waiting for the consolation of the Lord. Something tells me if he had the slightest impulse, he was off in the temple. People were used to seeing Simeon in the temple on the days when he didn't need to be there. But on this day, Mary and Joseph walk in. And it's, it's, again, don't think they walked in alone. How many babies would have been born within, within, you know, 10, 20 miles of the temple on one day? They weren't the only couple. Babies are coming in every day to be dedicated by God, dedicated to God, presented before the Lord. Every day. Five this day, 10 this day, 15 this day, two or three this day. And On this particular day, it wasn't Simeon's job to greet the parents of Jesus. It wasn't his day to be in temple. 
It was somebody else's job. But he's standing there, and two people walk in carrying a baby. And he just knows. The Spirit says, that's them. Now take it from Mary and Joseph's position. We don't know how often they'd been in the temple. This is certainly the first time they came in to do this. So the first time you come into a somewhat strange place to do something you've never done before, are you confident? These are kids. Mary's in her late teens. I don't know how Joseph is, maybe old Joseph is, maybe a little bit older. They're young kids. They're wandering in the temple going, what do we do next? I don't know. We go in and tell somebody. There's probably a receptionist or an information desk. That's the modern version. But as soon as they walk in the door, this old priest locks eyes with them and beelines his way into them. And then starts praising God. Now they've already had a kind of a strange time because shepherds showed up when their kid was born praising God. A bunch of wacky shepherds out from the hills who they didn't know came in telling them angels had appeared to us and told us to come down here because your son is special. Now, I don't know that anything weird happened since then. But now here they are going to the church, and the weirdness starts again. <laughs> and this, this priest just praises God and goes through a long spiel. Jesus Christ, and he, he calls him five things. The consolation of Israel, the Lord's Christ, God's salvation, a light to the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. And all these things add up to one word, Messiah. Messiah. Now, did Mary and Joseph understand that? Probably not. (laughs) And I think after the part that's written in the Bible, Simeon probably spent a little more time explaining to them exactly what was going on. Because he's a scholar. And what do scholars like to do? The scholars have two things they like to do. The first is study. What's the second? Talk about it. (laughs) They're going to tell people what they found. So Simeon, having studied up on this, after this passage, probably spends a couple minutes doing a data dump to Mary and Joseph. Your son's going to be a little different. He's He's got a special destiny. So Messiah. We take the word Messiah from the Hebrew Masiach, or anointed one. Remember, anointing is the act of pouring oil on someone's head because the hair is dry. No, because you're honoring them. You're setting them aside. They have a special purpose. So that Masiach is transliterated, that is moved from language to language without changing the word, just changing the pronunciation to fit in with the phonemes that work. Right? So this happens all the time in English. We steal a word from another language. It's been said that English doesn't so much borrow words from other languages as take other languages down into an alley and beat the words out of them. Because English is just loaded with loan words that we've taken from other languages. Similarly here, Masiach in the Hebrew is converted to the Greek Messias. It has no meaning in Greek. 
because it's transliterated. It's a foreign word. You just bring the meaning over. But it can also be translated into the Greek to Christos, which means anointed one. And from that, we get Christ. Now, you should all know this, but his name was not Jesus Christ. It was his title. Properly, it's Jesus the Christ. Jesus, the anointed one. His name, he would have been known as either Yeshua ben Yosef, Jesus, son of Joseph, excuse me, Joshua, which is his Hebrew name, son of Joseph, or Yeshua Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. Those are the two ways he was known. No one ever called him Jesus Christ, regardless of how many times people take that name in vain today. His name was Yeshua, the Christ. Minor detail. So, application, I'm done. Questions for you guys. How does understanding the Old Testament promise of redemption help you to better understand the New Testament? Should be an easy question. I've only been talking about it all lesson. Anybody want to talk about it from their perspective? I'm going to bring up the sound of crickets. I really am. Nobody? Brother, let it out. I, th- I think he clearly saw Messiah as a sacrificed one. Yeah, so that if he could see it, others had no excuse. I, I would love to agree with you, brother, but he was the only one who had the Holy Spirit along for the ride at the time. Sure, but understanding comes of the Holy Spirit. Right. We have that benefit today. Not so many had the benefit then. Brother, you were about to say something? So that's kind of why we started with the Old Testament. Bob, what you got? I say that the Old Testament also adds wonderful depth to the story because we can see that God had this plan all along. This wasn't somebody that fell out of the sky all of a sudden. Uh, This was something that God had planned, and it it makes a beautiful path that that we can understand God's sovereignty throughout the, the creation and the control of the world. No, no, I agree. If I, if I could make an analogy, a lot of people think that the coming of Christ was like an episode in a TV show. You, draw, you throw in a character, and then at the end of the show, you reset, so next week nothing's changed. That's the way TV was back in the day. But no. It's an eight-hour miniseries. It's a 12-hour miniseries. There's a long progression, and he was always expected. Except, of course, it's a 6,000-year miniseries. <laughs> Brother? I also want to point out how the Old Testament credentialized the New Testament events. I mean, it's like this is all said. I mean, look back here, understand this, and if this is what they're talking about. I mean, it adds such strength to the Word. Prophecy is God's highlighter. The word tells us what events are significant. 
So something that happens in the New Testament is only important because God said it would happen. Richard, come on up. One other question. How can you use what you've learned about the connections between the Old Testament and the New to teach or encourage someone else in your life? Is this, is this useful to you at any point now? 